This week on Making Contact. When you dam up those rivers and you flood those lands, that's real sacrilege to people who have that connection to the land. As we look for a solution to global energy problems and a way out of the climate crisis, some are turning to dams and hydroelectric power as a source of green energy. But at what cost? What is green about uh, projects that displace people, that inundate fertile floodplains? What's sustainable about removing people from their homelands and pushing them into the margins of, of industrial economies? On this edition, we'll take a closer look at the damage caused by hydroelectric power projects, and we'll visit a community trying to keep their culture and homeland free from the destructive influence of river dams. I'm Jen Chien, and this is Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. People have been building dams since ancient times, but the 20th century saw the growth of dam projects larger than any the world had seen before. Build a dam in the wilderness, and the world will beat a path to it. Millions come to this once desolate spot to see this engineering wonder, to hear the story of Hoover Dam. From the 1930s onward, projects like the Hoover Dam and the massive Grand Coulee Dam put the U.S. at the forefront of hydroelectric technology. These large dams were the product of a time when human progress was measured in concrete, steel, and optimism. Here is where man conquered this mighty river. In the U.S., they generated much of the power that fueled economic growth in the second half of the century. And their example has led to a proliferation of large-scale hydroelectric dam projects around the world. At this point, we have clogged two-thirds of the world's rivers with large dams. Jason Rainey is the executive director of International Rivers, an organization that works to stop destructive river projects around the world. He says the environmental impacts of dams are well documented. They flood fertile floodplains. They change the dynamics of rivers, their functionality. Uh, that includes uh, removing sediment from downstream. The functionality of rivers is, is such that uh, they provide fertility to coastal areas, they uh, provide nutrients to coastal fisheries. These sorts of processes are disrupted with large dam development. Despite promises that dams provide a clean, green source of electricity, Rainey also says there's growing evidence that dams contribute to global greenhouse gas emissions. Reservoir areas produce methane, and this is particularly true in tropical areas where inundated lands and, and, uh, and trees and vegetation rots in the bottom of reservoirs, and it emits this gas that is 20 times more potent at trapping heat than, than carbon dioxide. I have seen reports that suggest that uh, reservoirs themselves contribute up to 4% of human-caused greenhouse gases. That's the same percentage as the as the global aviation fleet. So it's not, a small, uh, it's not a small matter. Not only do large dams cause environmental damage, but the human costs are also high. Worldwide, these projects are often built on indigenous lands, and their effects are stark. Very often you find in situations throughout Asia, Africa, Latin America, the communities that are most directly impacted are losing what is by and large a self-sustaining lifestyle that is river dependent and not only losing those skills, those traditions and that anchoring to place, but you also find these communities then forced into, into other economic 
arrangements that where all they can do is sell their labor to the highest bidder or the lowest bidder and um, and you find communities uh, often economically dislocated and destroyed and this is true even in cir circumstances where uh, communities receive compensation or resettlement uh, we find in our research that it's rare where uh, communities are better off economically after a dam is, is, is built. That was Jason Rainey, Executive Director of International Rivers. We'll hear more from him later in the program. Although many of the largest dam projects these days are in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, it's not just a problem of the Global South. In the Canadian province of Quebec, a mega-development project called the Plan Nord, or North Plan, is underway. At its center are several dam construction projects. But the dams are being built on traditional Innu Aboriginal territories. Since the project was announced, the Innu community has mounted a strong campaign of resistance against the Plan Nord, as reporter Aaron Lakoff found when he traveled to northern Quebec in December 2012. It's just before Christmas, and I'm on the reserve of Maniutanem, an Innu Aboriginal reservation located about 600 miles northeast of Montreal, where the mouth of the St. Lawrence Seaway meets the Atlantic Ocean. The reserve, home to around 1,100 people, is a tight-knit community bustling with activity. In some ways, it's a community like any other small Canadian town. The people here love hockey, donuts, and country music. But the Innu of Washat and Maniutanem have also been engaged in a long, arduous struggle against development projects which they say attack their culture and way of life. A major part of that development is being done in the name of clean, green energy, as Elise Vallon explains. Surely when they speak of green energy, it's not green energy, because first, they're going to destroy the river with dams. And in the river, there are often salmon and other fish. It's other animals who will be destroyed by this too. And to get to the river, they will have to cut trees. What is this green energy when you start to destroy everywhere, trees, rivers, animals? This is not green energy. Dams are a major part of the Plan Nord, a 25-year project to exploit the natural resources in Quebec's northern regions and sell them to the rest of the province and even abroad. The Quebec government says the project will bring in $80 billion in investments and create 20,000 jobs. As Premier of Quebec, I believe in our social programs. I believe in our health care system. I believe in our education system and the support we give to families. Because I believe in all of this, I also know we need an economy able to support our health care system, our education system, and families. That's why the Plan A, as a wealth creation project, is so important for the future of our social programs. That was a TV election ad for Jean Charest, the Premier of Quebec between 2003 and 2012, who spearheaded the Plan Nord. Already, construction has begun on a series of massive dams along the Romaine River. The largest of the four dams will be over 350 feet high. The 
Romaine complex, uh, it's located on the Romaine River, which is uh, on the north shore of the St. Lawrence. And the complex is uh, four generating stations uh, with reservoirs. Gary Sutherland is a spokesperson for Hydro-Quebec in Montreal. It has a total annual output of about 8 terawatt hours. Just to maybe put that into perspective, 8 terawatt hours is a pretty much the energy that's used by about 470,000 average Quebec households. Uh, in terms of advantages, uh, it's, it's, this is a clean, renewable energy source. Hydropower is um, it's a reliable source of energy. It's one that we can use uh, with, when it's associated with reservoirs uh, to respond to demand. In electricity, when, um, when there's demand, it has to be met immediately. Under the Plan Nord, the Quebec government is hoping to become a world leader in so-called clean, green energy. But many are concerned that the project is anything but clean. It's, it's, a, it's a huge, dirty project. Chris Scott is an environmental activist with L'Alliance Romaine. But it's also a project that is, you know, I mean, it'll be draining the river, um, creating, flooding huge amounts of, of boreal forest, but also so it creates a reservoir, but also at certain points where they want to create the electricity, they're essentially forcing the river out of its normal course into an underground tunnel. For all the talk of progress in economic development, few people are asking the people who live in the region what they think about the mega-development project on their land. I've come to Maniotanam to find out how the people here feel about the dams and about the Kana. <laughs> Marie-Louise André Mackenzie is an 86-year-old Innu elder from the tiny community of Shefferville, Quebec, 700 miles northeast of Montreal. She's singing a traditional Innu women's song. Mackenzie has deep and dignified wrinkles and a large smile on her face. Born in the woods far outside of Shefferville, and speaking only in Innu, Mackenzie says the new development projects threaten her community and culture. I will always protect my land and my language. If you're aware, you know that our land is all broken up. Shefferville is broken and full of holes now. If I die, all will die with me. I hope the children will preserve it. This is my sadness. Even if I don't want it, they will break it anyways. It's already started. I know this because I have seen it. It's the children I have pity for. The impact of the development is that the youth are happy because they have jobs. But they are not conscious of all they are losing. They are lured by money. Marie-Louise André Mackenzie is not the only one concerned about the dams. Almost everybody I speak to says they think the Plan Nord will cause more harm than good. Jeanette Pilote, who lives on the small reserve of Washat, says she's already seeing the effects of the development. People are seeing that the consequences of Plan Nord are unimaginably heavy. The caribou have been driven far, far away. Our grandparents always knew where the caribou would be. Now they're moving away. 
Some men left to go hunting last weekend and didn't find any caribou in the place they were supposed to be. Under the Plan Nord, the government insists that half of the northern region will be protected, and Quebec Premier Pauline Marois has stated that she wants to turn an area of land roughly the size of Vermont into a national park. Chenette's son, Pichou, is wary of such promises. They tell us with the Plan Nord that 50% of the land will be protected and 50% will be destroyed. And when I say destroyed, I mean permanently, for good. But that destroyed 50% is 50% of our history, of our roots, our ancestors, and our culture. As indigenous peoples will be assimilated. For me, this is unacceptable. I don't want that for my children. Both Pichu and Chanette have taken part in direct action to try to stop the Hydro-Quebec development on the Romaine River. Highway 138, the main route for the construction crews, has seen numerous blockades. Tree trunks are strewn across the highway to stop vehicles, and the protesters camp out beside a fire. Denise Jourdain, an Innu language teacher, was arrested at one of the first blockades of Highway 138. I saw the eyes of my grandson through the barricades on the 138, and I thought, my God, this isn't what I want to pass on to my grandchild. This isn't what the mothers want to pass on to their children and grandchildren. Interminable struggles. Immediately after Jordan was released from jail, she and other women decided to initiate a long march to the economic center of Quebec, Montreal. They arrived in Montreal on April 20th, just in time to lead an Earth Day demonstration which drew hundreds of thousands of people out into the street. But with some environmentalists calling for more green sources of energy, what about the energy the dams could produce? It turns out, some of it won't even go to Quebec. Clifton Nicholas is a Mohawk activist from the reserve of Ganesatage, who has accompanied me on my trip to Maniotanam. Green energy for who? You know what, guilt-free energy for the South? Guilt-free energy for the Americans? Hydro-Quebec says that electricity exports to the United States generated 15% of its net income in 2011. The company has been supplying Vermont, New York, Massachusetts, and other northeastern states with electricity since the 1980s. We're not burning fossil fuels, we're damming up rivers. But in essence, you know, when you, when you dam up those rivers and you flood those lands, man, that, that, that's, that's, uh, that's real sacrilege to people who have that connection to the land. But, but again, like, you know, they're slowly diminishing the Inu people's ability to be those people, to be Inu. And it's like they did that to my people, right? They did that to Ganyokaga people. As a teenager, Nicholas was involved in the infamous Oka crisis of 1990, when the Canadian army sent 3,000 troops into Kanasatage to confront a Mohawk blockade against the development of a golf course. He says he knows the risks people are taking resisting the dams in Plan Nord. You know, it's very dangerous in this day and age right now uh, to stand up, I mean, for any indigenous people any, uh, anywhere in the world. Particularly now in Canada, there's been a shift in, uh, in towards a right-wing 
mentality towards resistance. Uh, just look at the legislation that's been passed over the last, uh, say, 15 years uh, that's created a situation that uh, uh, any type of civil disobedience, uh, uh, be it peaceful or not, is, uh, is considered terrorism. As our trip in the Inu communities winds down, so does the Mario Vallon Hockey Tournament, a large amateur competition which brings in Aboriginal teams from across Quebec to compete. Hundreds are gathered at the local arena in Manutanam to cheer their favorite team. Teenagers are enjoying hot dogs and french fries. Again, from first glance, this Inu reserve has so much in common with many Canadian small towns. But what sets it apart is its struggle to maintain their community and lands against incredible odds. For Making Contact, I'm Aaron Lakoff in Maniotanem. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information or for CD copies of this program, please call 800-529-5736. Because of listeners like you, this show is distributed for free to radio stations in the U.S., Canada, Australia, and South Africa. To find out how to support us, to download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Earlier in the program, we heard Jason Rainey, Executive Director of International Rivers, speak about the environmental and human impacts of large-scale dams. He also spoke about the need to consider the far-reaching and global consequences of these hydroelectric projects. All too often we look at the impacts of dams in a very hyper-localized way. Who's going to be drowned upstream of a dam? And maybe we'll look uh, a few miles, maybe further downstream at the immediate impacts. But rivers are parts of systems, systems that stretch from the mountaintops to the sea. And, uh, and these systems provide incredible ecosystem services, some of which we can know and understand and quantify if we wish to, others that are difficult to understand and perceive. And so the crisis that we're facing is one of a lack of visibility on the cumulative impacts of this dam building spree and an approach that the world is taking right now of each country, each project, determine the merits of a hydro project on its own in a narrow frame we need to be looking at the big picture as we try to create more resilient communities and economies and hopefully natural systems in a rapidly changing climate. We cannot lose sight of the important function that our rivers play, and we certainly cannot solve the climate crisis on the backs of our rivers, which is currently what's happening with the current dam boom. That was Jason Rainey, Executive Director of International Rivers, which advocates for dam-affected communities and fights to stop destructive river projects. Amongst the fiercest critics of dam construction is environmental philosopher, activist, and writer Derek Jensen. Jensen is author or co-author of more than 20 books, including Endgame, A Language Older Than Words, and Dreams. 
making contact reached him by phone at his home in Crescent City, California. We started with a simple question. What's so bad about dams? We, in this culture, generally misdefine rivers. We, we generally perceive them as, um, as basically just conduits, as channels. You know, I was, in, I was in L.A. a few years ago, and you see the L.A. River, and it's, you know, a concrete ditch. It's not, it's not a ditch. It's a, it's a concrete um, highway for water. This is, this is not a river because a river actually includes the soil. It includes the mist. It includes the trees next to the river. It includes the fish who live in the river. It um, includes the floodplain. We just see a river in one place. We think that's, that's just the river. But the truth is that rivers ride like snakes across the landscape. If you just see them over great a longer time, they will jump boundaries. And those floods are absolutely necessary for the floodplain. They deliver nutrients to the floodplain. They're necessary for the river because they, they allow the river to interact with all the surroundings. So basically when you put in a dam, you are destroying all of those complex interactions between sturgeon and gravel and pine trees and it, it kills the river, it kills everyone involved, really. Um, and um, what you have is no longer a river. See, here's the thing, too, is that an individual dam, an individual dam is no big deal because rivers get dammed all the time by mudslides, by volcanoes, and then the river tears through in a big flood and cleans itself out. Um, log jams, you know, for an occasional, um, occasional blockage of a river, is just another form of habitat variation. One of the problems, though, is that in the United States, there are 2 million dams. There are 60,000 dams over 13 feet tall, 70,000 dams over 6.5 feet tall, and that is mass murder of rivers. Once again, a river could survive one dam and then it's collapse, but rivers cannot survive this constant assault. Oh, it sounds like you are calling out dams as part of a system of destroying rivers um, that includes building alongside rivers. Is that Would that be accurate? So when you're talking about looking down on the floodplain and seeing that a river can't really overflow its banks anymore because humans have built so uh, so close to it, what do you see as uh, a better way to live with our rivers? I think the first step is to recognize that a river is a living being. And just as you're a living being, or I'm a living being, or a bear is a living being, or a tree is a living being. And, you know, that sounds odd at first, but when you think about it, what you as a human being are is really a process and a collection of a community of all sorts of organisms working together. There are actually more cells in your body that don't have your DNA than do. You're made up of, you know, bazillions of bacteria and blood flows through you. I don't understand why we can so easily see that we are subjective beings and we can't understand that a river, which is a similar process, full of a community, full of life, can also be seen as 
a a single being. Given that dams are doing all of this damage and that we have so many of them, what what can we do now that there are all these dams built? There's a debate about dam removal, dam mitigation. Is it is isn't a lot of the damage already done and would it not be more harm than good to remove them now that they're there? You know, okay, I said there's 70,000 dams over over six and a half feet tall, and that's a lot of dams, and if that's in the United States alone. And dams are still being built around the world, of course. And if, on, if we only took out one dam per day of those 70,000 dams, that would take 200 years to remove all those dams, and salmon don't have that time, and sturgeon don't have that time. And so dams need to be removed, and they need to be removed quickly. And there was one of the um, one of the fisheries biologists said this thing that has always hit me really hard, which is, she said that you know remember the rivers ride across the landscape. She said every time the river floods, it changes banks. Oftentimes, you know, it has this path over here, and then it'll change to go over here. She said every time it floods, it breaks her heart for all the little frogs and mice and and rabbits and birds and trees who get killed in the flood because you know it's flooding over here, it kills them. And then all the fish who get killed in the flood because the river is no longer over at place A, and so that, that water dries up eventually. So she said it breaks her heart every time it does that, but at the same time, it's creating new habitat, and this is what the river does. And so she had this beautiful, beautiful phrase, which was, it's short-term habitat loss, long-term habitat gain. And I love that. And I think about that not just in terms of rivers, not just in terms of dams coming down and making this short-term habitat loss for the long-term habitat gain, but I think about this, too, for so many other issues in our lives. Why do people stay in romantic relationships that they don't really like? It's because they're afraid of the short-term loss instead of the long-term gain. Why do they stay in jobs they don't like? Because they're afraid of the short-term loss instead of the long-term gain. You know, why? This is, this is, and that's why we don't take out these dams, is because we're afraid of the short-term loss for the long-term gain. There are those who would say that part of the long-term gain of dams is that hydroelectric power. Is it uh, so-called green energy? What would you say to those people? I would say ask the salmon if they think it's green energy. Ask the grizzly bears. And it's not even carbon neutral. I mean, it's, it's also bad. It, it, they make carbon. It's, it is complete nonsense to say that hydro is green energy. The only dams that are environmentally friendly are beaver dams, which create the greatest some of the greatest biodiversity, biodiverse habitat in the world. But dams kill rivers, and they make electricity for use for industry. And, I mean, the Colorado River no longer reaches the ocean. How dare, how dare they call that green energy? That is obscene. It's completely obscene to call it green energy when the Colorado River doesn't reach the ocean. And then... Beyond that, um, you know, so many indigenous people say that the first and most important thing we have to do is to decolonize our hearts and minds. And what that means to me, and what they've said to me, is that we need to recognize that dams aren't good, that dams are, that dams are evil, and they, they murder rivers. This culture is systematically just destroying life on Earth, and we don't question it. We don't. So the first thing we have to do is to make ourselves sane by saying, 
okay, my loyalty is to the salmon, my loyalty is to the frogs, my loyalty is to the real living earth, not to a system that brings us goodies, but is killing the planet. That was Derek Jensen, author, activist, and environmental philosopher, speaking to us from his home in Crescent City, California. And that's it for this edition of Making Contact. For a CD copy of this program, call the National Radio Project at 800-529-5736 or check out our website, radioproject.org, to get a podcast, download past shows, or make a difference by supporting our work. Like Making Contact on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. Lisa Redman is our executive director. Andrew Stelzer and George Lavender, producers. Irene Flores, web editor. Lisa Bartfai, Salima Hamirani, and Aaron Mathewson, production interns. And Barbara Barnett, Dan Turner, and Alton Bird, volunteers. I'm Jen Chian. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.